0: and I'd like to welcome you to episode 316 of the FCPA Compliance Report. The FCPA Compliance Report is sponsored by Advanced Compliance Solutions. I'm pleased to announce an exciting new service offering from Advanced Compliance Solutions. It is a three-step process designed to provide background to any product or service provider in the compliance space, which allows you to develop a strong message for your product or service offering. The second part is to sponsor my ongoing podcast series of one month to a better compliance program to get your name into the compliance market in the broadest way and with the widest reach of any social media space in the compliance arena. Finally, in step three, I provide training and ongoing support to your sales team around the message so that they will understand what a compliance practitioner is Chief Compliance Officer or Compliance Professional will need to hear from you. If you'd like more information, please contact me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. Today I have back with me Christy Grant Hart. Christy is a well-known uh, compliance practitioner and author of How to Be a Wildly Successful Compliance Officer. Christy and I debate the ISO 37001 standard. She's a very uh, large advocate of the standard and the certification. I am not opposed to the standard, but certainly find the certification to be worse than useless. We both set out our positions on the certification. The episode comes in at uh, just around 25 minutes. I hope you'll enjoy it. This is Tom Fox. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. Hello everyone, this is Tom Fox and welcome welcome to another episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. Today, I hope we're going to have a lot of fun because I have one of the most dynamic uh, compliance professionals around, Christy Grant Hart, the author of the book, How to Be a Wildly Effective Compliance Officer for a Debate. And we are going to discuss the ISO 37001 certification because it turns out that we uh, fall on different sides of the fence on this one. So with that, uh, Christy... uh, Maybe you could set the table. Um, I think most people are aware of the standards, but maybe talk a few minutes about the standards and then move into what you perceive the certification process does.
1: Sure, so thank you, first of all, Tom, for having me on your podcast. Um, I was excited to have the opportunity to debate you because from the very beginning, I knew that this was going to be a controversial topic and it certainly has turned into one within the compliance community. Um, But I think that it's really useful to understand what ISO does and doesn't do. Um, so ISO isn't a, uh, an organization that's dedicated to compliance. It's a global organization that came out of the United Nations when um, the United Nations figured out that um, screw sizes were different in England and France and Germany after World War II. So they began creating standards so that the entire world could understand what is expected and so that the entire world could meet the standard that everyone agrees to. And so this is the first ISO standard relating to compliance, but for many companies when it comes to environmental um, issues or when it comes to health and safety or manufacturing systems, they're very accustomed to what ISO requires. So here we had ISO members um, in 163 countries, 56 of them participated, sending their best and brightest people with respect to anti-bribery and corruption. They worked together for three years to come up with something that really mirrored the very best of what's expected from the UK adequate procedures defense, the seven um, pillars under this uh, federal sentencing guidelines, even things like Italy's law 231 and the other laws that really require a good program. Because I think fundamentally, um, I I live in London, I work internationally tremendously, and I think that sometimes – The fact that um, compliance is so embedded in the U.S. and in the culture is really different other places and they don't have the DOJ and the SEC or the U.K. and the SFO. And when you don't, having a standard and saying, well, what does a good anti-bribery program look like is incredibly important. And also trying to have a multinational program that meets all these different ideas, adequate procedures and, and the different mitigation defenses lines. For me, that's why I love ISO 37001. It is a very straightforward, very specific, very high bar to say what I have done meets best practices, and that's why we have the certification.
0: So I'm not too offended by anything you said in the uh, those remarks. <laughs> um, okay. And, um, because um, w- whereas I really don't think we needed another standard, it certainly doesn't hurt, and if. People outside the United States, companies or compliance practitioners find it useful to have a non-U.S. centric standard. Um, I can certainly understand that as well. But where we really do shake out differently is on the certification. And I think I can say that you see the certification as a positive uh, and I don't see the certification as a positive. So um, I uh, since you went uh, with that, I will tell you why I don't think it is, and then you can uh, let me have your reasons. But okay, so a certification is a process whereby you do um, audit, investigation, and look into the issue or issues that you uh, have been tasked with, and the certification process looks at a point in time and makes a determination of whether or not you have met the criteria which the certification will give you for that point in time. What it does not do in the compliance realm is determine whether you are doing compliance. And it's certainly not going to help you to determine whether the company will do compliance going forward. The It is a snapshot in time of a picture, excuse me, a snapshot of where your compliance is at that point. So. From there, my fear is that companies that rely on the certification process, so if Tom Fox Energy Company wants a third party that is ISO 3701 certified, uh, Tom Fox Energy will not engage in the ongoing management of relationship with any third party which has the ISO 3701 certification. And if Tom Fox Energy Company gets into FCPA hot water, for the actions of itself or its third party, that third party's certification process will be meaningless and will be of zero comfort to uh, Tom Fox Energy Company going forward. So that's my main objection is because it doesn't determine whether or not a company is going to do compliance going forward, both the third party with the certification and, from my perspective, the company in the United States that's relying on the certification. That's kind of point one. Point two is that the company that receives the certification um, may uh, will have, in my opinion, the false sense of security that this certification is somehow meaningful to those outside uh, or in, in the United States. And what I try to emphasize is that the Department of Justice requires a company hiring a third party, and the most important part in the third party relationship is the management of that relationship. And what I don't see this ISO certification uh, going to is that issue of managing the relationship going forward. Um, we saw, uh, unfortunately, in the Unioil case, Trace gave a certification of Unioil. Now, without uh, kind of going into the um, whether the certification process itself has problems or someone is not qualified to give a certification, if a company outright makes misrepresentations uh, to obtain a certification, um, th- that we've seen was done in Unioil. And it is uh, really, I think, demeaned that trace certification because it showed that it can be um, less than useless going forward. So those are my three main objections. Um, I come out of a, your corporate experience may be different, and I acknowledge that. But my corporate experience tells me that if a company receives a certification, Tom Fox Energy, or a company, Tom Fox Energy, looks to a third party that has received a certification, the senior management of Tom Fox Energy is going to say, Well, you've got all the money you need, buckaroo. You're not going to get any more money for doing compliance. And that is antithetical to what the Department of Justice has told us in their most recent pronouncement of the evaluation of corporate compliance. Programs going forward, and in the energy space, I don't think I think uh, senior management will, will use this certification as a way to not properly fund companies, both who have the certification and those who rely on the certification from other third parties, from continuing to do compliance uh, going forward. So that's really my objections. Without going into other
1: people's objections. Okay. Well, let's just start with yours then. Um, so uh, I would like to respond to each of your points because I think that they're, that they're well-made, but they um, perhaps don't understand what it is the standard does and requires. Um, so I think that your first point was that it's a snapshot of a moment in time. Um, and while that is in its own way accurate, in order to get certification, you have to look at documentation from the past year. So six months to one year, the certifying body is looking at what's been going on. It's looking at audit reports. It's looking at training records looking at a huge number of of records to say what has happened and relies on interviews. So they're interviewing the top management. um, In the case of some of our clients who are seeking certification, um, they take the square root of the wholly owned subsidiaries, and they do interviews at sometimes 10 locations if you have 100 subsidiaries. So it's a really in-depth review of what's been happening And once you obtain certification, it's for a three-year period, but the certifiers require every year to have a mini audit where they come back in, look at what's happened over the course of the year, and ensure that the program is still meeting certification. If it doesn't, they can revoke it. So I think that while it is a snapshot in time of when they did get it, um, and it shows recent activity. It's not just a rubber stamp that is, okay, we've got this forever. There's an expiration date and a requirement for annual um, pickups and annual reviews. And secondly, in terms of the false sense of its meaningfulness, um, I think that that. Any responsible compliance program has to continue to do due diligence. And ISO itself has a huge requirement for due diligence, bigger than many of the other corporate programs that I've seen even engage in. So if you are going to say, we are 37,001 certified, one of the ways you keep that is continuing to do due diligence. But I think it's not a false sense of security to say someone else who has received it has put a lot of time and effort into getting that. Um, And once they've done that, in order to keep it, they have to continue to do so, which is why I think that the argument about money is inaccurate, because one of the absolute requirements is that the the program is funded properly. If the ISO certifier looks at it and says, you don't have enough people, enough budget, you're not doing proper enhanced due diligence on your third parties, you're not taking a risk-based approach, they'll pull it. They will not let you stay certified. So I think that the process of continuous improvement and the process of how much effort it takes to get it and to keep it uh, makes it so that it is, in fact, a worthwhile thing to be going for and to have.
0: Okay. <laughs> so the um, why I think this is really just an analysis of a paper program Uh, to me was exemplified by the fact that E&I got this. And E&I may have policies and procedures in place, but they have a former CEO and a current CEO who are now under indictment in Italy for alleged prior corrupt payments. Now, these payments happened some time ago, I think six years ago, but the current CEO is alleged to have uh, participated in the bribery scheme to obtain uh, uh, development blocks for energy development. And if you have a CEO who is alleged to have engaged in nefarious conduct, that's going to set a tone at the top of the organization. And it really doesn't matter what the written policies and procedures uh, say um, that's going to imbue the culture of the corporation. And I think uh, either in my mind it was the best example of some of the things I've been saying or conversely for ISO it was absolutely the worst thing that could have happened is the first major international corporation to receive this certification uh, has its CEO indicted for uh, bribery in uh, inter, uh, to obtain energy blocks in West Africa. So to my mind, it really just sort of proves to me or gives me additional evidence that this is looking at the paper program and not whether people are doing compliance or, to use the the DOJ catchphrase, they have not operationalized compliance.
1: Right. Uh, And look, I I will absolutely admit that this is not an ideal confluence of events for somebody who is interested in ISO 37001 succeeding, right? Um, It doesn't look good. Uh, but if when you peel back the layers, that payment, those payments, were made in 2011. So you are talking about six years ago, and I think, as I said earlier, ISO is looking at what happens now, what has been happening in the last several months. Number one, the CEO, absolutely, he has been indicted, but it's for activity six years ago. And if you look at the report out of The Wall Street Journal, there was an independent outside law firm hired to do an investigation, and they found that no one at the board or the C-suite level knew what was going on now. Will the jury find that? I have no idea. But if you have an outside law firm that's already done an investigation from things that happened six years ago, and you're looking for the operational um, operationalization of compliance in the past six months or a year, You're looking at what's happening now, not in 2011, which is a very different snapshot in time. What the prosecution is looking at is different than what's happening now. And as you know, I am, well, I'm certain one of the reasons people hire, um, defense firms is to say, okay, shoot, we're in trouble. What do we do now? We don't want a corporate monitor. We don't, we know we messed up. We should have had this compliance program in place. We never took it seriously. What do we do? What's, what do we do to fix this? And you throw money at it. And this is a great thing for compliance professionals. I mean, in, in my book, you know, never waste a good crisis, right? You want to take those moments where you go, okay, I've got the board's attention. I've got the CEO's attention. What do we do to make this great so that we don't need a monitor, so that this never happens again? And I think that what E and I was doing was looking at it and saying, oh, shoot, we really messed this up. Let's look at this international standard. Let's take the very best practices from around the world. Let's try to avoid, I don't know if Italy has corporate monitors, but corporate monitors or follow-on suits in the U.S., and let's make it so that we do our best to have a watertight, airtight program now that we can try to rely on as the kind of defense that comes from having a good program even after you've messed it up.
0: So I would agree with that if we were talking about a former CEO, but I think that uh, having a sitting CEO uh, indicted along with a former CEO to me indicates an entire uh, continuation of conduct uh, that hasn't changed. And that e- even if the company was uh, dedicated to uh, reforming itself and remediating any prior issues, the fact that uh, a person who's alleged to have engaged in such conduct is still at the top really would permeate the uh, entire culture of the organization. So that's really the part that gives me pause.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure that the board did the right thing in that in that respect. Um, I mean, I, maybe you put him on gardening leave until you've had a trial and make the decision. I mean, at the very least, it'll be a distraction. But I think that damning the whole ISO 37001 standard on the fact that this prosecution is taking place in Italy isn't looking at what it's really meant to do, which is to standardize best practices across multinational companies and to say that, okay, this one messed up. I mean, a lot of our best practices come out of um, some of the deferred prosecution agreements and the settlement agreements where we look at, you know, what is the DOJ saying this time about what its expectations are? And I think that when you look at what 37,001 is trying to do is to try to help companies to know what that is, whether or not um, that decision to leave the CEO in place you know, made any sense or not. The rest of the organization and the tone from the top that the um, certifiers saw, which I wasn't in that group. I didn't work with the ENI certification or the certifying body. It's not one that we've worked with at Spark Compliance. Um, but I think that it doesn't undermine the entirety of what ISO 37001 is doing because we had this um, this one person still in place at the moment. Who could be exonerated, by the way. That could actually happen. Uh,
0: uh, We do agree that that could happen. But uh, it seems to me that your response conflates the standards with the certification. And I do agree that uh, having standards is something that can be utilized in a positive manner going forward. Uh, my uh, concern is with uh, the certification process. Let me turn to another issue that I uh, forgot to mention, which is the certifiers themselves. Mm-hmm. So whereas uh, I have a very high confidence in your ability to go in and assess a compliance program, uh, I may not have a high, sta- uh, high uh, uh, acceptance of certifiers I don't know or people who are not in the greater compliance community that haven't met at a conference and we're still a fairly small community, even uh, globally. So my other concern is that uh, there are going to be certifications given by people who are frankly not competent to give uh, such certifications. What are your thoughts on that?
1: I think that's a very high risk proposition. Um, I think that One of the reasons that we specifically um, have chosen to work primarily with Ethic Intelligence and the British Standards Institute is because we want to be very careful with who provides certification. Uh, With respect to Ethic Intelligence, they've been doing their own certification for 15 years, and they were the ISO body um, from France, their representative. Um, Same with British Standards Institute, and I think that when you are looking, if any of the people listening are looking for certification, that it's critical that you go for one that has um, a proper reputation. The other thing is there is um, – a- going to be what is what is in the works right now with the world's accrediting bodies is an accreditation for this type of certification body so in other words um you would have to it takes two years to get that certification or that accreditation um capacity because they have to look at you and who your auditors are and what they know and if they have the right experience and what your process is in order to become an accredited certifier. So I think as this matures, that that will be less worrisome when you look at um, only wanting an accredited certifier. Um, I think that that that, that is, frankly, the most valid criticism of it that you're not sure who's certifying it, but it's still a very new standard. And I think if you stick with people, you know, I'm I'm sure most people here have heard of ethic intelligence and understand that the, you know, the British Standard Institute has been um, the creator of it or the original one that was underlying before ISO, the BSI standard existed. Um, So I think that if you stick with the right places that it, it is meaningful. And maybe that's something important for compliance professionals to understand that while I would never ever advocate strictly relying on certification saying, okay, great, we don't need to do any due diligence at all on you. I think that would be foolish. Um, looking who is who is the accreditor um, and maybe asking for the audit report to see, you know, where do they get their minor nonconformities or any major nonconformities and making sure that you approve their program as well.
0: So I think probably the listeners of this podcast will uh, figure out that uh, you and I really have different views on this and that uh, yep. we we'll probably need to continue this conversation, hopefully in other forums, so that we can get these uh, issues out and people can at least have the uh, information in front of so they can make their own decision. And I really wanted to use that as as a way to maybe pivot to what I would call your day job. Which is being the author of how to be a wildly effective compliance officer, um, because you've re- you you're coming out with something that I think is going to be wildly useful. You've hinted at it in your um, uh, weekly emails that you send out for those who have signed up for them, and I would encourage everyone to do so to get tips on being a compliance officer and a compliance program, but you're coming out with a workbook. So why don't you tell us about that, because I find that to be really an interesting development.
1: Well, thank you, Tom. Um, yeah, so Donna Bohm and I uh, started working together last year on uh, on this idea of strategy, because so many of the questions that I get are related to how do I position my program, how do I present a three-year plan, what do I do when they think that I handle all risks, but I only think I'm handling anti-corruption and and competition, Um, they being, you know, the C-suite, the board, the managers, the sales team, nobody knows what you're managing. Um, It's incredibly important to be strategic because it's so easy to end up fighting fires all the time and not feeling successful. So what we did was we created this workbook that has lots of exercises, quizzes, space, writing, examples, letting people in the community say, okay, how do I do this? How do I approach this? And as part of the conversation about the workbook, um, I put out a survey to my readers, my readership saying, what are your number one and two questions? And getting back the answers was fascinating because the number one, unsurprising, how do we deal with engagement? What do I do with hostility? Um, The number two one was, what do I prioritize? And the number three was, where do I start? I'm new at this. I don't even know where to begin. Um, So that's really what the book is trying to help people to do is to answer those questions and do it for their program because the exercises are agnostic to whatever kind of business you're in. It'll help you to figure out what you need to do to be successful and strategic.
0: So, Christy, you have two websites, at least, that I'm aware of. You have Compliance Christy and you have Spark Compliance Consulting. Could you tell the listeners really the difference in focus in the two and what they would get from both?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, Spark Compliance Consulting is my consulting company. We're Los Angeles and London-based, and we focus on things like helping people get their ISO certifications, due diligence programs, program review, the, 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 the classic compliance consulting stuff. Um, the compliance, Christy, it's which is K-R-I-S-T-Y, that is all about the community. So it is about how are you wildly effective? How can we use behavioral norms? What kind of strategy can we use? How do we um, I have tips of the week that are one-minute videos about really engaging with with your board, with your C-suite, with your managers, um, and dealing with the problems that happen when you are a compliance officer. Um, So that, to me, it's really my heart. It's where um, my community comes together where we talk about problems and how we fix um, so that everybody can have a place to find out what you need to know.
0: So, for those of you listening, you've probably guessed that Ms. Grant Hart is a quite a dynamic mm-hmm. speaker. So, I was wondering <laughs> if you have any uh, upcoming speaking engagements through the spring that you could tell our listeners about or reference, uh, yeah. or they could get more. It's
1: information. a. It's a very busy spring, Tom. I think you and I are doing a lot of the same speaking. Um, I'm going to be at uh, doing the keynote at the Healthcare Compliance Association in uh, National City, Maryland, at the end of March. Then uh, speaking at the Women in Compliance Conference in London later that week. And the following week, I will be in Prague at the European Compliance and Ethics Institute giving the keynote there.
0: So you're going to have uh, quite a busy uh, couple of weeks towards the end of the month, but uh, I'm going to be in Prague as well, so I'm very much looking forward to not only catching up, but uh, hearing your talk this this time as well.
1: Yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. Um, Prague's a beautiful city, and it'll be a fantastic experience.
0: So uh, unfortunately, we're near the end of our time, but I was wondering if any of our listeners wanted to get in touch with you directly. Could they email you, and if so, how would they do it?
1: Absolutely. So um, the best way to get a hold of me is at Christy, K-R-I-S-T-Y-G-H, at sparkcompliance.com. Um, also, you can visit my website at compliancechristy.com, where you can sign up to get the compliance officer tip of the week sent to your email um, and to become part of the community um, and uh, enjoy that.
0: And so I would just uh, give an additional shout out on the tip of the week. Uh, any listener should go sign up for that because it's uh, not only informative, but it's a lot of fun and something that uh, really uh, you can utilize not only that week, that day, that month, but uh, put into to practice, which is uh, one of the things that uh, I'm trying to do with my series. But having that tip that you can implement, I think, is uh, really a useful tool for every compliance practitioner going forward. Well, Christy, this has been a ton of fun, and I look forward to you and I continuing the dialogue.
1: Thanks so much, Tom. Take
0: care. All right. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. If you have listened to this podcast on iTunes, I would greatly appreciate it if you would rate the podcast, as it would help our rankings and also help get the message out about the FCPA Compliance Report to a wider audience. Also, if you have any questions you'd like uh, answered in a mailbag episode, please email them to me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. This is Tom Fox. Thank you for joining me on this episode, and I hope you will join me on our next episode of the FCPA Compliance Report.
1: This podcast is a part of the C Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.